Abstract Gamer, Episode 6, an interview with Mike Selenker. Hello, my name is Joe Peterson, and I am the Abstract Gamer. A little while ago, I had the pleasure of speaking with Mike Selenker about his soon-to-be-released game, Stonehenge. I mentioned this in my last podcast, and I'm really looking forward to getting my hands on this game. I'll probably do that on Father's Day. I had the opportunity to play all of the games in the box, and I really enjoyed them all. I'll be doing a show on Stonehenge in the near future, I'm sure, but for now, I'll just jump right into this interview. Hey, Joe, uh, this is Mike Selinker. Just, uh, glad to have this conversation with you about Stonehenge and about any of the other games you're interested in. Uh, I just came back from the Gamma Trade Show yesterday, the uh, convention in Las Vegas where the industry uh, re- retailers and distributors all got to see Stonehenge for the first time from Titanic Games, and it was uh, pretty exciting. Why don't we start off with a little bit of history about you? Um, can you tell us a little bit about how you got into gaming and um, sure. previous games you've you've been involved with? Well, all, all sorts of things. I mean, I, I was uh, uh, I started writing uh, puzzles and modules for Dragon Magazine when I was when I was 14, 15 years old and, and helped out with Dragon or with uh, Dungeons and Dragons for for almost, you know, off and on for 20 years or so, but uh I uh spent spent 8 years at Wizards of the Coast and uh was the creative director for Hasbro or for for the one of the creative directors for the relaunch of 3rd edition Dungeons and Dragons. Uh I got to have the honor of rebooting Axis and Allies after 18 years, and uh, got to work on a Risk game with Risk Godstorm, and all sorts of all sorts of things. Worked on Magic, worked on also was a creative director for a bunch of trading card games, uh, and now uh, I have a company called Lone Shark Games, where James Ernest of Cheap Ass Games and uh, a few other people make a, a whole bunch of games for for all sorts of folks. We uh, we do events uh, as well, and. And just just have a really good time making games. So uh, that that that's my background. Sounds great. Pretty eclectic background there. Yeah, I like to hit everything. I, you know, some people have the career. Some game designers have the career of being known for one game or 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 one company. And I've always wanted to just do everything. So I've gotten the ability to get really close to all the things I really like to do, play with. And so. I've been uh, been pretty lucky in my life. Yeah. Okay, so in, in episode five, I actually talked about game systems in general, and one of the things I said I was looking forward to was Stonehenge. But for the people who aren't quite up on it, why don't you tell us a little bit about what Stonehenge is and and just tell us a little bit more about it. I'd be happy to. Uh, Stonehenge is the first anthology board game, first of what I hope will be many. It started when... James Ernest, uh, my design partner, theorized a, a the possibility of a single box that contained that you took five game designers of of some renown and had them figure out a bunch of parts and a theme that went in there, and then put in all the and then each of them would go off to their own corners and write a game, and then each of them would put the same would put their rules into the same box. So. So you would get five games inside one box with one set of pieces. So I I, uh, I took that on and uh, got some of my friends to help out. People I got for this project were uh, myself and James, plus Richard Borg, who does Battle Lore and, and uh, 
Bruno Faiduti, who did Citadels and Mystery of the Abbey, and Richard Garfield, who did Magic the Gathering. And we each, we, we, decided, we settled on the theme of Stonehenge because we found it very mysterious. And so we each wrote a game about something we particularly liked about Stonehenge or some crazy theory that we thought Stonehenge might be for. And now we uh, are, are about to produce it next month uh, from Titanic Games, which is an imprint of Paizo Publishing. And it looks very, very exciting. The pieces are gorgeous. The, uh, the, you can build a scale model of Stonehenge as it used to be or as it is right now. And uh, so it's just been, it's been very exciting. I think. And the reaction has been amazing. So. Yeah, I've really been looking forward to it, and you know, you got some some big hitters in the in the designers there. Um, well, they're all my friends. For, <laughs> I mean, you know, I, the uh, the the team was selected because I thought they had the the kind of uh, the interest in the the project, the the intellectual the intellectual scholarship of it, and and the uh, the expansive theories that are behind it. Um, but also just because I really like hanging out with those guys, and uh, so you know, I mean, they're all they're all over the the world, of course, and and uh, we will uh, we will be having other heavy hitters as well. But mostly, they're just people I really like. Um, the next expansion, by the way, we're, we're gonna we're opening this thing up to hopefully every game designer in the world. But the next hard uh, the ne- next um, box expansion will be featuring. Uh, Klaus Jürgen Reda, who did Carcassonne, um, uh, Serge Leger and Bruno Casala, who did Shadows Over Camelot, and Andy Looney, who did Ice House. So, uh, mostly just people I really like and uh, who really like the idea of this this possibility that we could all be involved in the same project on the same game. Yeah, one thing that's interesting is you oftentimes you have a game that has a, a theme to it, but with Stonehenge, you, you don't. You don't have a game that has a theme. You have a set of components around a theme, and everyone builds their own game based on that. One of the interesting, I, mean, I think it's great in one sense, but it also does give you some ideas. I mean, the 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 because we're we're freeing this up to to anybody who wants to write for it. Um, we uh, I, I get into this conversation a lot. Um, so a designer will uh, walk by it and see something in the layout of the board or the pieces or uh, something they've always thought about Stonehenge, and it'll just hit them, and it'll be a simple one-sentence idea. They say, has anybody done that? And I'll say, no, go write that game. And so, uh, like Bruno and Serge said, to us, Stonehenge looks like it should be a Stargate. Can we open a Stargate on Stonehenge? I said, Sure, nobody's thought of that before. So, the the difference, the different things that you'll get out of uh, out of Stonehenge, you know, come from the people who are excited about what they see in the project, as well as what it comes out of their crazy minds. That's pretty cool. So, yeah, you mentioned you see the pieces or whatever, but I realize we haven't even told anyone what what's in the box. So, right? No, I'd be happy to. Do that. So, you basically, the box, what do you see? You see a board. Um, the board looks like a uh, looks like a sort of geometrician's uh, idealization of Stonehenge. It's it's uh, uh, the edges have been smoothed off a little bit. So basically, you have a track with 
uh, numbered, uh, colored spaces around it, um, numbered one through thirty, and and uh, places for the trilithons, which are the big three stone monoliths or triliths, actually. Um, that you know, I mean, so basically, you lay, you can put the pieces together in a way to make Stonehenge on the board. And the pieces are are uh, the plastic stones that are very very nice looking. There's also a uh, so you have you have all the pieces necessary to make all the stones of Stonehenge, and then then you have uh, a, a sort of druidic looking pawn that you can use for each player, and there's a deck of cards which has uh, the representations of the spaces on it plus plus some cards that are used. Well, I can't say what they're used for. Uh, and uh, there's, you know, so those are all the pieces that are in the box. But the most interesting part, in my opinion, is the 16-page rulebook because you get basically the descriptions of the pieces and then a two-page spread from each of the game designers saying this this is their game. A uh, little... little uh, bio and uh, uh, comments from each of them about, you know, is basically liner notes on each each of their games plus their, their concept. So, uh, and then you get all the game rules for, for their games uh, inside that 16-page rulebook. Right, and so it comes in, it has, I don't even know what the different commands are called, but they have discs? Yeah, they have discs, bars, uh, figures, I believe, figures, the trilithons, cards and the board. I think that's the full list. Let's see. So I guess one of the questions I had is you have 60 spaces around the outside and you have components for five different colors plus some additional, like a generic pawn mm-hmm. and what other pieces are there? I guess that's it, right? Yeah. And so it's listed as on Board Game Geek as two to five players uh, I believe it's listed. Uh, at least I hope it's listed as three to five players. But um, the uh, if it isn't, I will uh, tell them because none of the games are. We've played all the games with two players, and they're fine. But but uh, but really, it's a it's a communal game. Um, some of the games later on will be for two or more players. But um, anyway, the uh, you know there's, there's each player has a colored set of pieces, right? So you can decide to use them for, the game designer can decide to use them for representations of individual players, or they can be different uh, different factions of non-player or any any number of other things, right? I mean, that's that's the amazing thing about, to me, about the rule book, is that on page four and five, there's a this this what's in the box thing, and none of the descriptions say anything about what those pieces are used for. Because in one game they might be swords, the 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 bars might be swords, and in another game they might be rocks, and in another game they might be um, uh, candy bars. You know, I mean, it can be pretty much whatever you want it to be. Right, that sounds good. I guess the one question I had is, since six, sixty is so e- easily divisible by two, oh, yeah. three, four, five, and six, why did it pick five sets and not six? Does it oh, because. No, uh, because the games in the box that we currently have go up to five players. Um, you might not be surprised that a future expansion for this will contain pieces for more players than that. Um, so, 
so you know, I mean, we want we want all of the pieces. We want the the expansions to match. You know, to give give players value. So the 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 next expansion, uh, the one thing I told the designers on, I told uh, Klaus and and Bruno and Serge and Andy that their games had to be playable by large groups because we wanted to include the pieces for the the uh, sixth, maybe seventh players to give people uh, a slightly different experience. Sounds great. And but yes, 60 was a magic number. 60 is, from a game design perspective, right? Um, there's, uh, there's this ring of stones at Stonehenge. Uh, the small stones, are, they're basically pits now. The stones are not, mostly not there anymore. But, uh, and there are 56 of them going around the trilithons. And uh, I will make some uh, archaeologists cringe when I say, that just wasn't enough. So we made it 60. Right? So if you're coming to Stonehenge for the uh, perfect historical accuracy, you'll be sorely disappointed. But from a game designer's perspective, you know, 60 is, is, a, is a beautiful number because you can make uh, any number of players up to seven divisible by uh, the component spaces. And so everybody wanted it that way. Right. I think that's this is a good place to put in a little plug for the, your you have a designer diary on a webpage on Paizo's webpage here. I guess it's Titan, Titanic Games webpage even. Yeah, uh you can get to it from the uh Paizo dot com or uh Titanic dash games dot com. Either one gets you there. The um the the I did a five part lead up you know, sort of explaining what the game is about. And the, the next one that will go live very shortly is the game descriptions of what what each of the games are. And I can I can give you a preview of that without any problem. I'm happy to to go through and tell you what tell you and your listeners what the games are are about, even though that's not going up for a few days. Yeah, well, this won't be going out for a couple of weeks, probably. So. Well, that's right. So, good point. Good point. Well, maybe it won't be such a such a. Uh, Earth-shattering release then, but uh, uh, the games uh, the games we picked were um, the each designer had a different theory about what Stonehenge might be used for. So uh, Richard Garfield did a game about using your sorcerer's powers to build the build the rocks of Stonehenge. Uh, Bruno did a druidical election uh, for the High Druid of the Council. Um, Richard Borg did a, uh, a a knightly King Arthur King Arthur's knights, but long dead. Uh, <clears throat> the ghostly knights battling among them uh, for control of Stonehenge. Uh, I did an alien chariot race because I figured there had to be aliens involved in putting Stonehenge together somehow. Because I can't really come up with any better answer for that. Uh, so I have chariots running around the place. And uh, James, uh, ever the optimist, did a game about selling off the rocks of Stonehenge one by one because it's kind of an eyesore, and we <laughs> clear it off our landscape. Um, so I, I had a good time when we were at, you and I were at a convention together recently, uh, playing all those with you. And so you know you got to be the first among the first people in the world. In fact, you may you you and a few of your friends may have been the first people in the world to play all of those games that aren't mentioned in the box in any way, right? So uh, 
so you got a you got a chance to see it up close uh, and play all of them in a very short period of time. I, I was really excited about that too. I when as soon as I saw that on the schedule, I I jumped right on that. Yeah, it, it actually hasn't happened since. Um, we've we've we I don't think we've had. You know, I, I've I've gone anywhere since that that customer you know or a player has sat down and said show me everything all the way through but you you guys you guys are like yes and yes and <laughs> so, so that was kind of fun i hope that some people will do that i i, I hope that you know uh that i i imagine that that i as a customer would not want to play all of them back to back right away but other people might might uh, uh just say okay let's try this and this and this and this and this they end up with the ones they like after that that they really think are the best ones they'll play those over and over yeah i i, I think you were you were saying at the convention that the box contains three and a half good games yep but i don't know but i don't know which ones they are because um the i i know that all gamers are different. These games are so different from each other that that each gamer I, I expect is going to go. Well, I don't think I want to play that one again. And they might also say, well, that one was okay. But I hope that there's three of them where they just go, oh yeah, these are great, right? And that'll be different for each player. Um, at least I expect so. I don't think there's going to be there based on having played them now over and over with different people. I don't think there's going to be one game that rises to the top or anything like that. I think that uh, you're just going to have different people come over and say, I know which game you'd like. Let's try this one out and see how it goes. So uh, that's my theory. But, yeah, three and a half would be a fine number. Um, I can hope for five. But, uh, but I mean, the real thing is, since, since it's open source, and we haven't even talked about that at all, um, you can have, hopefully, dozens and dozens of games Right. Very shortly. I was uh, just gonna gonna ask about that. Are you? Are you? Is there going to be someplace provided to put up rules that the fans make up? Um, we're still we're still putting together the details, but basically the plan goes something like this. Uh, and it's possible that in two weeks, when your uh, listeners hear this, it may have morphed a little bit. So mm-hmm. apologies if that's the case. But but basically, there will be a site on. Paizo.com, TitanicGames.com, that says uh, that that is a forum for games, and anybody can take their material and type it into a special web form that will kick out a PDF that looks very similar to the pages in the rulebook, and so your game or or your friend's game will be able to be put into the the rule book in such a way that that it looks like you know it's next to Richard Garfield's in the same way um and so the there as I said, there's a lot of details still in flux on this cuz we're still a little bit out from it but we hope that there's going to be ways to uh to comment on other people's games maybe to rate them um to uh, have certain games get uh, promoted to to have people talk about uh, them on different forum sites outside of the Paizo site um, to post links to other other places you might find them. This is going to be going on on a fairly international level because we're releasing in uh, English, French, German, and Spanish 
those are all different boxes uh, at the same time. And so there will be a German mirror site, uh, you know, and so forth that, that, you know, we'll see different languages and there may be translations posted and all that kind of stuff. Like I said, some things still in flux. Don't hold me to any of it. But there will definitely be some sort of forum where you can take your game and put it online. And our statement is uh, uh, we, we encourage all the game designers out there uh, or, or people who haven't had their games published but, but hope someday to be game designers to use this as a platform for getting other people to give you feedback about your game designs and, and so forth. I, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. I believe it will be. Um, it's hard that, to... By the way, I'm sorry, I don't mean to interrupt you. The, that sentence alone, that, that section, when I was at this Gamma Trade Show this weekend, uh, this week, was about the most uh, impressive, or, you know, the most popular thing I said all weekend, because the retailers felt that that was the kind of thing that would be giving customers a reason to keep coming back to the game and keep coming back to the game store to try out their new games to uh, to form communities of of young game designers and so forth. That that was real popular at this convention I was just at. It's hard to avoid the comparison to things like Ice House and Peace Pack, where they have a similar type of structure where it's, it's kind of been re- opened up and you you can make up your own rules and put it out. Um, available to anyone to play. I, I won't avoid that comparison. I will proudly proclaim it. Um, the the concept. I mean, the concept was was you know come up within something of a vacuum. But the the, the developed concept uh, certainly looked to things like Ice House, Peace Pack, and the Gift Project. Um, all of which I'm sure you've. you've I saw that you uh, you were doing reviews and stuff like that of of those of those games as well. Those those are near and dear to my heart because modularity is just about the most interesting concept in game design to me. Where where you can have uh, you can let people's imaginations run wild rather than locking them into a very specific way to play. So it definitely uh, I won't claim that it is the you know that that it is uh it doesn't have progenitors and i i know it will learn from that i hope uh chris berm the guy who did who did the gift project uh and i had had a you know a 2 hour chat when i was at essen about how these two projects can dovetail into each other and i hope someday soon you'll see uh his his project for this this game because oh. he's he's somebody that I really admire and would hope that uh, at some point we can have him uh, be a part of this process. Great, yeah, and so looking forward to seeing people come up with new new and exciting games and the new expansions for you know potentially more players or different components made me, and I was looking over my notes and I realized the one thing I missed is the one thing that I noticed was just kind of seemed like it was missing when I opened the box was dice. Oh, yeah. It just seems like a, a natural game component. And I understand you have the cards in there for randomness, but... Well, it's certainly a natural game component. I hope, I mean, one of the things that 
uh, I remember discussing, and so Dice will could eventually rear its rear its head again. Is that you know the the pieces are rocks, right? And so the concept of you know rolling rocks around obviously is where we got where we got dice from. And so uh, I, I think that it's very possible. I don't have any current. Nothing is on the table yet, but. But dice seem like uh, a natural part of the 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 evolution of this game. I mean, obviously, the game doesn't say the following. It, it says it says uh, to the designers who are actually working on it, um, please use components that are only in this box. But but other people writing for it can can add, it would certainly be welcome to say, I've come up with this game. Let me add two six sided dice to it. I don't think anybody's going to object to that. Right. right, and so eventually, I think that as we start poking around the corners of uh, this game and and continuing the science on it, uh, there will probably be some dice sometime down the road. But I don't know what they'll be. They might not even be normal dice, for all I know. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll look forward to that. One other thing that I wanted to talk about that we talked about a little bit at at GameStorm was. Uh, I wanted to somehow prompt you to talk about the educational value of the game because I, I thought it was really interesting when you were talking about it at GameStorm. Um, so why don't you go ahead and t- tell me a little bit about what you think about that. Well, I think it's it's double-sided, right? I mean, the the there's there's certainly the positive way to look at it, which is that that you want, when you pick a historical theme, uh, you want it to be... Uh, a a valuable teaching tool and and stuff, but we certainly didn't put any any blinders on people. If uh, you know, the, there was no point, as far as I know, when alien chariots actually raced around Stonehenge, and so uh, if uh, we were willing to basically uh, throw the throw the educational aspect out when it was appropriate and to bring it up whenever it was, so so there's a great historical. Event in the in the English countryside called the Phantom Knights of Low Bar, where in a phantom ghostly knight army appeared, supposedly in 1936, and I find that very interesting. And so, when Richard Borg was looking for a theme for his uh, war game, that seemed like a, a natural one. But I mean, that's about where it stops. The the educational value quickly. Uh, gets sublimated to are we having ourselves a good time playing this game and uh, that's why for example there are 60 stones on the outer ring instead of 56 because I think you just have better time with that that's how I look at it anyway other people may have stronger opinions about how you can as as a monument I mean the ability to build the monument I think that's a big deal, right? I think there are a number of people who are going to buy it uh, or want to have copies just because they find the historical value of the Stonehenge monument to be strong, and I think I, I strongly encourage that. But you know, other than that, I wouldn't hold me to anything. <laughs> right? Yeah, it wasn't actually designed to go into the classroom and, and teach about Stonehenge. So I mean, it 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 could, right? I mean, it's it's a teaching tool if you look at it in its sort of most abstract way, but most things are if you look at them in their most abstract way. So, uh, yeah, I, you know, 
uh, I think it's I think it's going to be whatever people want it to be, and so the more sort of pseudo historical stuff people do, the more it will feel like a like like a historical object, and the the crazier things people do, the less it will seem like that. And I don't think I'll be in control of that. I think that that uh, it will be about how how it develops as a as a game and as a uh, community experience. Cool. And so far, the the game has been pretty well received where you've taken it, I assume? Well, yeah. Um, so when you saw it, uh, it was kind of its first debut. Uh, I guess that was... Um, what was that the middle of middle of March? Uh, we were together in yeah, something like that. Yeah. So uh, since then, I took it to a convention called the Gathering of Friends, which is out in Ohio, and uh, showed around, and lots and lots of people wanted to get their hands into it. And I heard at least I don't know at least eight to ten people just come up to me and say. I want to write a game for this, uh, and I would say how they would do it, and they said, great, and they ran off to their corner and started theorizing what they what they want to do. So among the game designer community, uh, it certainly had a good reaction, but I kind of expected that because uh, it's kind of a taking the blinders off. The more significant test for me was taking it to the Gamma Trade Show, uh, where there's a very skeptical crowd of distributors and retailers Who've seen all sorts of things go through their stores, and and you know I, I imagine that crazy ideas are spouted out all the time, and and people could look at it and go, well, that's clever, that's cute, whatever. But that didn't, that wasn't what happened. What what people saw was uh, uh, something that they were very excited about, and 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 I I certainly spent a great deal of my time talking to retailers who I'd never met before and had. Uh, and and hearing their theories about how their customers would want to be a part of it, and and that it seems to have also occurred uh, internationally as well. Although I'm not as close to that, uh, the the people who I interact with on the international level have also told me stories like that. So yeah, I think it's I I I don't know right, but I think it's catching a chord. I think that uh, it's an idea that that people want to succeed. It's been a while. You know, every now and then, as a game designer, when you get a product that people think, "I really want that to succeed," um, we had that with Pirates of the Spanish Main, for example, when people saw the, the when when James and I wrote that, where where people saw the polystyrene ships coming together, and they said, "Oh yeah, we 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 want that to do well," right? And that was that was kind of the reaction we got for Stonehenge, was we we really want that to succeed, and so I got the sense that stores would be putting effort into having Stonehenge days and game design days and, and all that kind of thing to really get their customers to enjoy the the product and, and have a good time doing it. So yeah, I, I think the re, the response is, is going to be good. The other Oh, the other thing I saw when I was there uh, was the uh, a preview copy of the next issue of Knucklebones magazine. Uh, Knucklebones has Stonehenge on the cover and a six-page article inside about it and a contest about it and a new Stonehenge game by Paul Peterson who did Guillotine and Belisera uh, some of those games and his game is about Spinal Tap Ah, so the expansions are already starting. Yeah, exactly so uh, so that's going to be probably first people's, first, a lot of people's first knowledge about it when they 
see on the cover of this magazine, this imposing trillathon, uh, and uh, and then other magazines will have that as well. So, or you know, some some different places. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's starting to spread. It's a, it was just a like I said, it was just a science project when we started it, but now it actually feels like a game. Yeah, and it's really a game that I, I've enjoyed. I enjoyed all five of the games that I played, and thought it was great. You know, I, I really only had one complaint about the whole thing, and that was how uh, the component related is. You have this very beautifully sculpted druid, and it, I mean, it looks fantastic. But when you put it on the board and try to imagine that being a chariot, it's a little bit more difficult. Yeah, I mean, I think that we wanted to get as abstract as possible. Um, we wanted to have the ability to say this is a sword um, but we didn't want to put in swords because if you put in swords then everybody's game involves swords and so the druid though started out as sort of a or it's not even listed in the game as a druid of course it's called the figure uh, but uh, it started out as this just sort of formless block with arms and we got pretty tired of looking at that Right. I mean, so at some point it started to have to develop some sort of some some sort of vaguely humanoid features. Otherwise, it was just not going to be a piece that people wanted to play with. And so, so yeah, it started to get a little more specific, and I can I can see that. But uh, I think it's unlikely that we're going to do any chariot pieces anytime soon. So right. I, I don't see that being a big complaint. I I think it's a it's a beautiful set of components. It looked great. And, you know, maybe when I'm playing, actually, that was your game, right? With the think, chariots. Yeah. Maybe I'll just grab a couple Icehouse pieces and make those be the chariots. When we did Pirates, we had, uh, we, one of our proudest moments was watching the Pirates of the Spanish main ships be introduced into other games because people just thought the, uh, the uh, you know, it was cooler to have these, these multicolored polystyrene games. So feel free to bring other pieces into this game. It's only okay. turnabout is fair play. <laughs> Sounds good. Um, I think I've gone through everything that I really want to talk about. Is there anything I missed that you want to mention? Cool. Well, uh, yeah, I think it's great. I hope uh, hope your listeners pick up a copy and come up with games on their own, and they can uh, send them to me or send them through the website, and I'll look forward to trying them out. Uh, myself, I'm always interested in seeing other people's games. So, so yeah, when when Stonehenge starts to come out, I I, I can't wait to see what uh, people who would like this, uh, who've listened all the way through this podcast, uh, come up with on their own because I think that's going to be very very interesting. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. So, cool. Thanks, Joe. Great. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. I'll talk to you soon. I'll talk to you later. Bye. Thanks. This show is a member of Goblin, the gaming broadcast network, gbncom.com. I really enjoyed talking to Mike, and I hope you enjoyed listening to our conversation. I cut out a couple minutes towards the end because it was not relevant anymore. Uh, it was talking about the release, and the release has already happened. So you can just go on down to your store and get a copy right now. Then let me know what you think. Now, moving on to current events. I have two things. First is about the Devon and Zertz episode. I recorded it, and while editing it, I could barely keep my own eyes open, so I decided not to subject you to it. 
There are some salvageable parts, but I think I'm going to try to get a friend to talk to me about these games, and I'll put that into the show. And finally, the contest. I'm still having my contest for the Travel Peace Pack. Remember, you can get three entries. Uh, The first entry will be for any feedback you give me on the podcast, and I would also love to hear anything about any websites you know of where you can play abstract strategy games, real-time or web or email games. You'll get one extra entry for sending me any idea about my essay section of the podcast. I have lots of games to review, but you can feel free to send me games that you really want to hear about, too. And then you can get a third entry for sending me ideas on how to structure the strategy section. I'm really feeling like most of the tips I come up with are trite and not very useful, so I'd appreciate anything that you have that would help me with that. I will be drawing the winner for this on June 30th, so if you want to get your entry in, please hurry. And with that, I am out of here. Thanks for listening. Funky Rap and Whimsy Groove by Kevin McLeod. Licensed under Creative Commons Attribution 2.0. HTTP colon slash slash creativecommons.org slash licenses slash by slash 2.0. This information and more can be found at www.abstractgamer.com.